See what, Larry, can I get you to just run and close that door in the foyer so that we don't have to compete with a chainsaw or whatever that is? It's probably just an angle grinder, but let's call it a chainsaw. It's more impressive. Yeah. Today's an exciting day. I don't know if you realize. It's, it's exciting for a number of reasons. So first, this, this is our first Sunday in two years where there are no restrictions on us whatsoever. Whatsoever. So not, not only are the masks off, the capacity restrictions are gone. And, and if you just breathe in, you can smell it, can't you? Just... It's just normalcy mixed with mildew, yes? <laughs> oh, we'll take it, we'll take it. That's, that's worth enjoying. Um, that's, that's worth celebrating. We had, we, had a, we had a fun time in the office running around our various places where those signs had to go up, trying to find them all to take them down. The other reason why today is exciting is because we have arrived at the summit of Mount Everest. It is impossible for us to look at the, the, the portion of the scriptures that we will be looking at today, this part of the Bible. It's impossible to look at it for any length of time and to remain unaffected. I truly believe that. What we are going to consider today is absolutely massive. We have made it to Romans chapter 8, verse 28. I want, I want you all to know, actually, what, as, as we begin, how gracious Mike has been over the last four weeks um, because... Uh, for both of us, the book of Romans has been a very special time of, of ministry, and Romans 8 in particular is just very special to us both as pastors, and yet he's agreed for the last month to focus on, um, to, to take a back seat in the preaching, to focus on a lot of the practical tasks happening as all these sorts of things begin. You've seen the fruit of his labor in our announcements each week as there's so much complexity to what's happening in the life of our church at the, at the present. Um, this is always our busiest part of the year. And so we did the divide and conquer thing and he put his full attention elsewhere. But that was a sacrifice. That was a sacrifice. Um, he would much rather be doing what I'm doing right now. But good news. You'll be hearing from him next week. Because here's what we're doing. At some point in history, a genius took a slice of bread and thought, I'm going to cook this again. And the results were delicious. <laughs> Much like that genius, today we will be considering Romans 8.28, all on its very own. We'll be benefiting from one of the most precious promises in the Bible. And then next week, we're going to cook it again. And Mike is going to bring us straight back here to Romans 8.28. And we're going to preach it a second time, just to make sure that we get the message. Why are we so excited? Well, why don't we just have a read of what this promise is. Romans 8.28. We know, we know, that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Do you remember Romans 8.1? There is no condemnation where we stopped and we asked ourselves, how much condemnation is there for those who are in Christ? The answer is there is no condemnation. And here we pause again and we ask, how many things are working together for the good of those who love God? And the biblical answer, the promise of God is all things. All things. Even that thing? Yes, even that thing. All things are being worked together for the good of those who love God, for the good of his children. God is working all things together 
God is taking every single individual set of circumstances in your life, you, his children, and he is working to redeem them and to turn them towards your good and his. That is really, really good news. Let's understand it correctly. Let's make sure that we're not making the the obvious mistake. The, the, The most common distortion of this passage that I have come across is to separate the promise from its intended target. Often it's misquoted as, God is working everything together for good. That's not what it says. That's only part of what it says. What it actually says is, for those who love God, all things are working together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, which means that this is not a promise for the human race. It is a promise for Christians. If you are here today and you are, you are not yet a believer, here's, here's how to listen to the content of this message. Um, by now, hopefully you've learnt that there is a cost to following Jesus, that there are things that will change in your life. Jesus is disruptive. He's going to, he's going to meddle. And sometimes that's scary and sometimes that's painful. This is, there, is a, there is a cost to following Jesus. There are things you will lose. And so you also need to know what you stand to gain, do you know? That is what today's sermon is about. God gives this promise to all his children, which means that if you were to reach out to Jesus as Savior, that you would become a child of God and this promise would be for you. This is the sort of promise where, where, it's, where it's, magnet, its sheer size is difficult to overstate. And at the same time, once we do understand it, it becomes a really difficult promise to grapple with. This is a promise, make no mistake. This is, this is put here in God's word in order to encourage you, in order to strengthen you. This is not a rebuke. This is not a, this is not a stern correction. This is a tender invitation from God to place your faith in him. If this promise is having its intended effect in us, we should read it and our hearts should be encouraged and strengthened and overjoyed that such a wonderful thing could be true. This is a promise for God's children which applies not only in some situations, but all situations. That God himself, the sovereign creator of all things, is taking all things and working them towards your good. Working them towards ultimate good. Working them towards the fulfillment of his redemption plan in you, And in this world, everything, everything, most especially, we need to hear this, your suffering included is being worked by God towards our sanctification. It is making us like Jesus. It is fulfilling his plan for us. And it will contribute to our ultimate glorification on that day when we become like him. Do you feel the sheer magnitude, the size of this promise? It's enormous. And yet there's a but, isn't there? It's not one of the good ones. For some reason, this promise is offensive to us. 
at times. Have you experienced or seen that? Larissa just prayed into this very thing. There is something about this promise that I think because it speaks right to our most vulnerable and painful parts. is offensive. It speaks to our hurt. And hurting people can be a bit prickly, can't they? There is some part of us, sometimes it seems to come up out of, out of nowhere, that looks at this promise and then bats it away with an outraged, how dare you? God, how dare you? Because this promise is aimed straight at our experience of suffering. That, 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 is, that is its intended application. That's the only part of life where this is difficult to believe, do you understand? That's the only part of life where we need to hear this. It is aimed specifically at our suffering, and we have often developed our own coping mechanisms for the pain of this life, and those mechanisms are not compatible with this promise. It's threatening. What we end up doing is we, we, we subtly alter the truth of who God has revealed himself to be, hoping to make life more pal palatable. That's the coping mechanisms that we invent. Because if this promise is true, it comes with a necessary implication, which is very uncomfortable, which is this. God is involved in my suffering. God has a plan in my suffering, it means God is involved in my suffering, and, and my flesh prefers a weak God who is unable to defend me than a sovereign God who allows or even ordains suffering for me. But a false view of God is of no help to us in reality. And the promise really is the better thing. If we can move past that self-righteous offense and come to believe that God is working his sovereign will to redeem my suffering, then this promise will become the enormous strength that it is meant to be. I've often said it, that I believe these are the sorts of lessons that are easier to grapple with ahead of time. Best to learn this now, before your darkest day, than to try and learn this when you are already over the edge in pain. However, it can be done the other way around. And for some reason, probably our hardness of heart, it seems like for many of us, it has to be done the other way around. Sometimes we learn the hard way. Today, our task is not to answer every question this raises about how it could be true, about, about the mechanics, about, about comprehension. Actually, Mike's gonna do a lot of that for us next week. But rather, this week, we're just going to sit here with this promise, assuming that it's true, hoping that it's true, and let it speak to our hearts. We want to experience what it means for this to be true, to see what this promise looks like in practice. How, what, 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 like, I can't even begin to imagine what it would look like for God to redeem all of my worst things before we even try to comprehend it, just to, just to get some idea of what we're talking about. How we're going to do that today is by looking at the life of the person of faith who has gone before us 
and how he concluded this to be true. We find his story in the book of Genesis, chapter 37. It is the story of a man named Joseph, the son of Jacob, who was also called Israel. The story, the, the history of a, of a man's life, goes for 12 chapters. So buckle up. We aren't going to read it all word for word. You'll be glad to hear. And yet we're going to pull out as many key passages as we can. Why don't we begin reading? If you have a Bible handy with you, you can read along with me in Genesis chapter 37, verse 3. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him, and they could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. I wonder why. Let's hear the dream. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we, are, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose, and it stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? And so they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Hot tip, if you ever have a dream like that, keep it to yourself. No good can come of it. And then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers, and said, Behold, I've had another dream. Joseph, no. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come and bow ourselves down to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. All right, here's the setup. What a family. Complicated, complicated family. Anyone here today with complicated family, you may be (laughs) relieved to hear that many of God's saints have experienced that complication. Jacob, the patriarch, the, the, the grandson of Abraham, is now named Israel. You may remember that he married two sisters. After he fell in love with one, but was tricked somehow, I don't understand the mechanics of that, by their father into marrying the wrong one the first time around. Jacob, married to the two sisters, loved his second wife more than the first. She was the one whom he had hoped to marry with the first try. He loved his second wife more than he loved her sister, which created, unsurprisingly, A rivalry between the girls. And things start to get really, really passive-aggressive. The the girls start using children to compete with one another, are going as far as to get him to marry their servants, (laughs) to, to, to race to see who can provide him with the most sons. Turns out that when we ignore God's basic plans for life, including marriage, it causes all kinds of days of our life chaos. Isn't it a good promise that in the the new heavens and the new earth, days of our life will be no more? 
Rachel, the sister whom Israel loved, was barren for the longest time. But after 10 sons have been born to the other women, Rachel finally conceives and gives birth in Jacob's old age to two sons, the first of whom is Joseph, the second of whom is Benjamin. Jacob was a very flawed man. He showed clear favoritism to Joseph, the first son of his favorite wife. He bought for him a very expensive coat and treated him very differently to how he treated the rest of the family, which, as you can imagine, resulted in jealousy, which created rivalry between the brothers. This all exists before the dreams. The final straw comes when Joseph begins to have spiritual dreams that indicate that his other brothers and even his own mother and father will one day bow down before him and he makes the full mistake of telling them. D- depending on your, on your worldview, that might be surprising to you, but yes, God does sometimes communicate through dreams and through visions. Joseph was particularly gifted as an interpreter of dreams. This, this spiritual gift, if you will, appears multiple times throughout his life. It's a very significant part of his story. There's a lot to say about that that I can't get into today because 12 chapters of Joseph. Other than to say that if you have a dream that you believe is from God, Mike and I would love to hear it so that we can pray with you and and attempt to discern what that is all about. Joseph made a crucial mistake at this stage in his life and told his jealous brothers about this humiliating dream that he was having for them, which turned their jealousy into rage. The next part of the story tells us that one day Joseph comes out to his brothers who are watching over the flocks in a faraway place with a message from their father. And as they see him coming, Joseph's brothers decide that they are going to kill him. One of the brothers talks them down. Instead of murder, they merely throw him in a pit. We'll pick up the story in verse 23 of 37. When Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and they threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. And then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum and balm and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. Let our hand not be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. That's a good compromise, Judah. Well done. His brothers listened to him. Then the Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. There are those who read this and see in the sale of Joseph, the foreshadowing of Jesus being betrayed for 20 pieces of silver in the garden by Judas. Verse 31, we pick up the story again. Then they took Joseph's robe and they slaughtered a goat. They dipped the robe in blood 
And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. And then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son, mourning. And thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. You see, sometimes what happens to us with these biblical stories, these biblical accounts, is that we become familiar with them over the course of of a lifetime, and they they lose their emotional shock value. I think as well, because, I mean, what you are reading here is one of the oldest writings known to us. This is is an ancient story. This, this, This predates Rome. So the way that they tell stories is different to the way that we tell stories. But when we stop to realize this really happened to a real person and we put ourselves in his shoes for just a moment and yes this is an ancient culture and an ancient people but they are people before they're anything else imagine what has been happening in the mind and the heart of joseph throughout this experience the favored son of a large and wealthy family a little bit pampered loved by his father tenderly assaulted and sold by his own brothers. They've played together as children. This this is the the group of people he played hide-and-seek with on the weekends. His father, deceived, convinced that he is dead. Feel Jacob's grief. I will go down to death, grieving says Jacob. My grief will know no end. If that was Jacob's grief, imagine Joseph, now a slave in a foreign land with no hope of rescue. He is experiencing the pain of betrayal, not just from, not just from a trusted person, but from his own family. His flesh and blood have sold him he has lost his freedom. We, we, we lost this much of our freedom over the last couple of years. How much did it affect you? He's lost his status. This is the end of all the plans that he had ever made for his own life. He has been taken away to an unfamiliar land, filled with an unfamiliar people, who spoke an unfamiliar language, I do not think that we can properly imagine the devastation of these days for him. If this were to happen to you, would it not seem world-ending? How do you recover from that? How many nights did he lay weeping and asking questions for which he had no answer? Why me? How is it that God could allow something like this to come into my life? I thought he loved me.
he must be weak or unkind, or this could not happen. And yet, that is not the end of Joseph's suffering. It gets worse. We read about it in chapter 39. Now a servant of Potiphar, Joseph's stars begin to change. Verse 1 of chapter 39. Now now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight, and attended him, and he made him an overseer of his house, and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house, and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field, so that he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. It's a pretty good gig. It's like going home to mum's for the weekend, isn't it? Things start to look up. Life is improving. I've been sold as a slave. That's, that's world-ending. And yet, as far as slavery goes, that's as good as it gets. I belong to a, a high-ranking official, a wealthy man with a large house who trusts me completely. The Lord has blessed me. He's, he's redeeming my circumstances. It's not life in my father's house, but perhaps this is as good as ever th- things are ever going to be again. You see, I've heard that one of the malicious tools that torturers use to break people is to give them hope and then take it away. Because this happens to Joseph. Verse 6. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from, uh, from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Well, hang on. We start to like Joseph, don't we? We start to get an insight into his character. As she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or or, or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house were were there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Actually, there's some pretty good advice here for those of you who would like to leave live a righteous life. Sometimes the best tool that God has given you to escape the temptation to sin is your legs. Get out. Even if you have to flee naked. As soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, 
she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. And then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and he fled out of the house. Suddenly, we don't like Potiphar's wife very much. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife had spoken to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. Okay, this part of the story shows us a few things. And one of them is that Joseph was a good, moral, loyal man. And importantly, a genuine worshipper. Do you feel that? How could I do this wickedness and sin against Potiphar and against God? They deserve better from me. Joseph's suffering was not something that he has brought on himself through a sinful life. That can happen. Sin has consequences. In this instance, that's not what is happening. Joseph comes out of this story like a shining beacon of righteousness. How many men would have failed in his circumstances? Potiphar's wife, the the epitome of spoiled and bored indulgence. Evil personified. A corrupt and powerful woman does her best to ruin his life. In her spurned, selfish anger, she frames him and an innocent man is thrown in prison. Now imagine again that you were Joseph. Chained in a filthy, dark, damp cell. A man of faith, a good man, whose life is being systematically destroyed in such a torturous and slow way. What would that do to your faith? Most of us haven't been through this exact set of circumstances, probably. This This is extreme. That's the whole point. This is extreme suffering. Think of your darkest day. Your darkest day, the worst day of your life where you felt that though you had not acted sinfully, the slings and arrow of this world had come home to roost in your life. What did your prayer life look like? Can can you imagine Joseph praying in his cell? Lord, what lessons am I meant to be drawing from these experiences? Do you know that irritating question that pastors ask you sometimes? What do you think the Lord is trying to teach you through this? It's like, I don't think I would have had the guts to ask Joseph that question. Unless his righteousness fail, as well as my nose. The wicked prosper while I am destroyed. Have you ever had that day? Have you ever been slandered and falsely accused and no one believed you? Have you ever been betrayed more than once? 
Lord, is there no justice on this earth? That's, that's the day that Joseph is happening. Perhaps his prayers became like those of Psalm 88, written after Joseph's life. O Lord God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted amongst those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape, and my eye grows dim through sorrow. You would not dare to pray like this were it not in the Bible, would you? Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness? Your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, I cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. And that's the end of the psalm. It's not one that turns to hope. Have you had that day? Have you had that month, the year? Not many of us have been sold into slavery by our siblings and framed by the wicked and powerful. But many of us have had that day for our own reasons. There is suffering in this world. Sometimes it doesn't make any sense. Lord, why? How? We're left with the question, does he even care? And it needs an answer. Because you will ask it, whether you want to or not. And on those days, we have an enemy, Satan, who is very, very skilled at drawing alongside us with his lies and slandering the character of God. He's been doing it since the beginning. He has a very practiced, deceitful tongue. This is happening because God is evil, he will say. This is happening because he hates you, because he is weak, because he doesn't care about you, because he is playing games with your life like a child with a plaything. Sometimes when we're in these situations, we, we have those lies ringing in our ears and we don't have the right coping mechanisms. And so as a result, we, we pull back from fellowship. 
hoping to avoid anything that would provoke or aggravate the pain of our doubts. What we end up with is a situation where the only voices in our world aggravate and inflame our doubts. We shut God out, but it spirals and it spirals, and there is a very, very real temptation to abandon God. On that day, we have a need. Do you understand? We have a need, and that is for our knowledge and our certainty of the character of God and His promises to be of a strong enough substance that we can believe Him to be true. We we need the promises of God to have penetrated our hearts deeply enough that we have the ammunition to go to war against the lies of Satan and to doubt our doubts. To compel us to continue in faithfulness to our God even during the trial. We need a trust that goes beyond circumstances. As we see in the rest of this story, it is a trust which we can by God's mercy. Because Joseph's story continues. His time in prison lasts more than two years. Two years, forgotten in a cell for a crime he did not commit. Through the miraculous intervention of God, yet again, Joseph is rescued from the cell. Whilst in prison, He again interprets a dream, this time of a man who goes on to work directly with Pharaoh after leaving prison. Later on, Pharaoh has some confusing uh, dreams, spiritual dreams, and Joseph's servant remembers Joseph. I'm sorry, the Pharaoh's servant remembers Joseph and says, I know a guy. He might be able to help you with that. So Joseph is fetched from prison and taken to Pharaoh. And his interpretation of Pharaoh's dream results in him becoming the second most powerful man in the Egyptian empire as they begin to work to prevent a coming famine. For seven years of plenty, they store the grain as a result of uh, Joseph's interpretation of the dream. And then when the famine comes, in the region, Egypt alone is prepared. A famine which sees Joseph's brothers standing before a Joseph that they do not recognize, begging for food. A decade of his life has passed since he last saw these men. Isn't that incredible? Ten years. Here's here's the thing. Sometimes the dark day is a dark decade. Let me read to you from Genesis 42. When Jacob, that's Joseph's dad, remember, learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. And so 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, the other favorite son, right? Rachel's other son. 
Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. And thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was the governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Of course they didn't. Ten years ago, they thought they'd sold their brother into slavery. And now they're talking to an Egyptian, a powerful one. What thoughts are going through Joseph's mind? Think of all he's been through. Think of all the pain that he has endured as a direct result of these men kneeling before him. In this moment, he is now in a place where he holds the power of life and death over them. He has, within his ability, within his authority, the capacity for vengeance. What would you do? Think, like just as he looked at them, think of, think of all the old wounds that just reopen, just to see them and hear their voices. The faces that he has stewed on night after night, lying in prison, those betrayers. If I was there, that would be like a knife stabbing into my most painful memories. How tempting would it have been to repay their violence toward him with violence? And that's not what happens. We'll skip forward to Genesis 45.1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me so that no one stayed with him. Uh, when Joseph made himself known to his brothers and he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. And so Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine which has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither ploughing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Actually, after the death of their father, Joseph would say it again in perhaps one of the most famous quotes of his life. In Genesis 50, verse 20, it says this, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good.
Joseph chose the path of mercy and forgiveness. Though he totally does punk them first, it, it, does, it does worth mentioning. Would you be so gracious? How? When we are confronted with grace like that, the question is how? How, how? What is it that has driven this man to find that capacity to put down his anger, his pain, and to reconcile with those who, who have harmed him? How? Do, do, do you see? This is, this is not just theoretical. This is not imaginary. This changes hearts and lives. If we, if we can just grapple with this truth, it will change who we are. It will become the greatest strength that you possess. The most precious promise of God. If I could just become confident, right down to my bones, that this is true. What you meant for evil... God meant for good. That's how Joseph said it. The Apostle Paul said it like this. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Do you dare believe it? If you are a Christian, this is yours. This is yours. Jesus has won it for you. It is a certainty. It's not just true if you believe it. It is true whether you believe it or not. God has promised for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purposes, all things work together for good. Every single moment of your suffering and pain, he is redeeming. A day will come, I can't guarantee it will be in this life, where you will see and you will know that you were not abandoned and that it was worthwhile. And we know that day is coming because we know who he is. How could the God who sent his son to die in your place, though you were his enemies, how could that God be cold and distant and remote and uncaring? Doubt your doubts. He is who he says he is. Christian, this is yours. And if you can come to believe this it will give you strength on that day to be a different kind of person. It will transform your experience of suffering. It will infuse your darkest days with the hope of hope. Do you want to be like Joseph? What a, what a wonderful example to follow. His actions were the product of a faith. Do we not have better reasons for faith than he? We understand the cross that would redeem us. We are indwelled with the Holy Spirit of God. We have the crystal clear promises. The, the ancients, they had examples like Pharaoh to show them that a good thing was coming. We have the thing itself. A saviour. Betrayed by those who should have loved him. Sold for 20 pieces of silver. Delivered into the hands of foreign authorities suffered and died in our place and for our sin and by the miraculous intervention of God. 
winning the greatest victory ever won. Just look with me, just for a moment, just look with me at the fruit of actually believing this promise. Forgiveness and grace for others. Why? How? How are they connected? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. How could I hold that against you? That's profound. What about this? Peace and comfort. We don't know if it was there right from the very beginning. But at some, at some point, Joseph concluded that God was involved in his suffering and that that was a good thing. It gave his suffering meaning, purpose. It strengthened his heart, his faith. It was his source of peace and comfort. Imagine having that. And not to mention the actual redemption of suffering itself. This promise takes your worst thing and infuses it with eternal meaning. God is using it for your good and His. matters. You are not forgotten. It matters forever. And likewise, look at the fruit of rejecting this promise. Like so many have done. If you, if you reject this promise from God, I promise you, your pain will not go away, but your hope will. Sometimes in an angry tantrum, we, we, we reject the grace of God. Thinking that, that somehow that, that is going to improve our life. It's quite the opposite. And so what we are left with in light of all of this is a call, an invitation really, to dare to believe that this is true and that God is working all things together for you, his children. That God has never lied to us, that he really is working now and bringing all things to a good outcome for those who love him. And as painful as that idea may be, it is also the source of life. Our Father, that's a, that's a promise. That's a big one. It should be our greatest strength. 
but because of weakness in us. It's hard. It is, it is hard for our minds to reconcile that you are good with the suffering that we experience for doing good. The suffering we experience that seems to have no cause in us. We know that we are not the first to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We, we, we know that others have been here before us and yet our questions, each of us needs to learn it for ourselves. Father, I believe that if, if, if I could believe your promises perfectly, pain would lose its power over me. I would be spiritually invincible if I could only believe this. I would have an inextinguishable hope. Father, I don't have faith like that yet. I have faith, but I ask that you would teach me that faith. Father, I would prefer to learn this the easy way. <laughs> it, would, it would be a delight to me if those words were enough to convince my most inward parts that you are who you say you are. That I would have a faith that would never waver or doubt or be afraid. Father, I know that's not how it's going to happen. We pray right now, our Lord, for those who are enduring great suffering. That you would make your face to shine on them. That they would see you for who you are and that they would grapple with your very great promise. That they would receive it as strength and life and hope. Would you overcome their fear would you overcome the doubt? Would you quiet the voice of their enemy? Would you redeem their situation? Would you be light in the darkness? Would you be life among the dead? Please be true, our God. Father, we pray that you would strengthen weak knees, that you would meet every need, that you would hasten the process of sanctification, and that you would come quickly to redeem this broken world. Father, if, if what those who hate you intend for evil, you intend for good. then who can be against us? We thank you for grace and for mercy that endures. We thank you for your loving faithfulness, your long-suffering covenant love. Heal our hearts. Teach us to trust you. It is in the name of Jesus which we pray.